enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. have a day job. An office job. I'm in an office 40 hours a week. The work that my organization does involves a lot of international travel. Not for me, I'm in the office, but my coworkers get to go to cool places. Back in 2018, there was a mass exodus to Africa, and our office got super quiet for a few weeks. The fun part's when they all come back with stories and pictures of where they've been. This time, my coworker Kate brought back a video because she had experienced the magic of the equator while she was in Uganda. I thought about it, and I've never actually been below the equator, never visited anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere. That'll change. I'm going to New Zealand in February. Very excited about that. But currently, I have never left the Northern Hemisphere of Earth. This means I have never experienced the Coriolis effect, or the Coriolis force, depending what article you read. Kate showed a video of a man performing a demonstration of this effect and what it does to draining water. In the Northern Hemisphere, water drains with a clockwise spin. In the southern hemisphere, water drains with a counterclockwise spin. Directly on the equator, and the Ugandan man in the video demonstrated this, water drains with no spin, just sucks right down the drain. My coworker John, who did not go to Uganda, did a quick Google and found that this is bullshit. Bit of a bummer, I was making a lot of clever quips about toilet flushing directions and finding myself very funny, but his Google findings made sense. He read it off Snopes. The Coriolis effect is a thing, or rather the Coriolis force, but it's a big force. As I talked about in my episode on tidal forces, just as we don't feel how the effect of gravity on Earth is pulling our feet more strongly than our heads, the Coriolis effect is acting on too large of a scale for it to be demonstrated with a big funnel and a bucket of water. You can't find the equator by triangulating where water drains straight down. I'll argue that you can sort of pinpoint the equator if it's a sunny day at noon on an equinox, because that is when the sun will be directly overhead and your shadow will be directly under you. But even that's not exact. The equator is a region, not a hair-thin line with dramatic changes on either side of it. But the Coriolis effect, that is real. Good God, I was going to try and get more reputable sources for this episode. Not that my sources are unreliable, but I went on my library website and did a search, trying to find some ebooks at least that talked about it. They do. There's a bunch of books on the Coriolis effect. Hard part of that, though? They're physics books. They go into the equations of the Coriolis effect. That's math. There's graphs. This is because the Coriolis effect is a physics thing as well as a physical manifestation of our planet's orbit affecting how weather patterns move. The physics concept was a well-known, studied, and debated effect even before French scientist Gaspard Gustave de Coriolis published on the transfer of energy in rotating systems like water wheels. Italian scientists Giovanni Battista Riccoli and his assistant Francesco Maria Grimaldi described the deflection of moving objects seen from within a rotating frame of reference nearly two centuries before Coriolis. But Coriolis gets the credit. 
even for aspects of this force that he didn't address at all. He never even mentioned the atmosphere or the rotation of Earth. He was focused on the supplementary forces that are detected in a rotating frame of reference. In a paper that he published in 1835, he divided these forces into two categories. The second category contained a force that Coriolis called the compound centrifugal force, and it described... Mm, I don't like the way it's described, actually. I, it's going to require me to define a lot of things. I'll describe what it is, though, I promise. Anyway, Coriolis called it the compound centrifugal force, but by the early 20th century, folks were calling it the acceleration of Coriolis. And by 1920, it was the Coriolis force and had been applied to meteorology, which is what I'll focus on for most of the podcast. It should be noted that all of the meteorological advancements that were made about the Coriolis force were made without anyone knowing about Gaspard Coriolis. He didn't look at meteorology at all. His applications were purely theoretical and water-wheel-focused. His name is on the Eiffel Tower, though. The first tier up has 72 names of French scientists and engineers on it, and he's on there. Very cool. I wish I'd known about it before I went to Paris back in 2014, which would have been cool to check out. The Coriolis force that physics talks about is an apparent force. That means it explains why a moving object appears to act a certain way within a specific frame of reference. For the Coriolis force, this means that when you look at an object that's in the center of a spinning plate, if the object suddenly moves in a straight line towards the edge of the plate, it looks like the object is moving in an arc. The direction of the arc depends on which way the plate is spinning. In a frame of reference where the plate is spinning clockwise, the force acts to the left of the motion of the object, so it'll look like it's swinging in an arc away from the observer before they move back towards the observer to land on the edge of the plate. On a plate spinning counterclockwise, the force acts to the right, and the object will look like it's swinging towards the observer in an arc before it moves away to the edge of the plate. But how does the physics of the Coriolis force translate to Earth and meteorology and oceanography and so many other things? The Earth spins eastward in a prograde motion, as most of the planets in our solar system do. Because of this motion, observations made from the surface of Earth need to account for the Coriolis force when analyzing the motion of objects. The effect really only becomes noticeable for motions that take place over long periods of time and over large distances. Examples of this are the movement of the atmosphere or the movements of water in the ocean. In these situations, the Coriolis forces cause moving objects on the surface of the Earth to be deflected to the right in the Northern Hemisphere and to the left in the Southern Hemisphere. Meteorology and oceanography like to pretend the Earth doesn't move. When they're working out currents and patterns and such, it's easier to set a rotating frame of reference over the fixed point where you're currently trying to determine the cloud cover and chance of showers. Quite a lot of work has gone into figuring out the patterns of Earth's atmosphere and ocean flow. There are strong forces acting on the Earth's poles, and there is no Coriolis effect at the equator. The Coriolis effect does play a part in the creation of jet streams and western boundary currents. I knew about jet streams from flying on planes. They're meandering, narrow bands of westerly air currents that ring the globe a few miles above Earth. But I had to look up western boundary currents. Apparently, they are warm, deep, narrow, and fast-flowing currents that form on the western sides of oceans and carry warm water from the tropics towards the poles. The examples that I saw given were the Gulf Stream, which I'd always thought was an atmosphere thing, but it runs north from the Gulf of Mexico, the Agujas Current in the Indian Ocean, and the Kuroshio on the northwest side of the Pacific Ocean. 
Carl Gustav Arvid Rosby, an American meteorologist from Sweden, was the first to explain the large-scale motions of the atmosphere in terms of fluid mechanics. There's a number called a Rosby number that's used to determine the relative importance of the centrifugal and Coriolis forces in maps of weather patterns. A small Rosby number indicates that a weather system is strongly affected by Coriolis forces, where a large Rosby number signifies that a system is affected by inertial and centrifugal forces. An example I saw in my research was tornadoes. They have a high Rosby number because they are created by centrifugal force, and the Coriolis forces acting on tornadoes are minimal. Surface ocean currents are driven by the movement of wind on the water, so the Coriolis forces are strongly acting on these currents, and they would have a lower Rosby number. Where Coriolis forces really shine is when you look at the direction that hurricanes rotate. The ocean's largest currents circulate around warm, high-pressure, atmospheric areas that are called gyres. Reminds me of an opening line in a Yeats poem. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. I try to memorize that poem every few years. I don't know why it sticks in my mind so much. Anyway, the ocean's circulation around gyres is less significant than the air's circulation to create gyres. But the Coriolis effect creates a spiral in these gyres, which in turn helps with the formation of hurricanes. The lower the Rosby number of a hurricane, the stronger the force of the Coriolis effect on the hurricane, which makes the wind spin faster and pick up more and more energy, leading to a stronger hurricane. The Coriolis forces also direct the spin of the hurricane. Air will travel counterclockwise around the low-pressure areas that form the center of hurricanes in the northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere. As a weird counterpoint, if the atmosphere is rotating around high-pressure areas, it will spin in the opposite direction clockwise in the northern hemisphere and counterclockwise in the southern hemisphere. Hurricanes rarely form along the equator because the Coriolis effect is weaker in this area. The Coriolis effect also influences ocean waves. One type of wave that relies on the Coriolis effect is the Kelvin wave, named for Sir William Thompson, who later became Lord Kelvin. Not sure how he became Lord Kelvin, but he did. According to Wikipedia, it was a reference to the River Kelvin, which was near his laboratory at the University of Glasgow. He is also the person that the unit Kelvin is named for, a measure of heat. I'm getting off track. He published on his type of wave in 1879, and it is an ocean wave that is trapped at the Earth's equator and along vertical boundaries like coastlines. Kelvin waves move toward the equator when they have a western boundary— towards the poles when they have an eastern boundary, and make a whirlpool when they have a closed boundary, moving counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere. This is all on a grand scale, though. The statement about the Coriolis effect moving the water in drains is a lie, unless you do it under very intense laboratory conditions, making sure that the shape of the vessel and the initial movements made when pouring water into the vessel don't affect the water spin. The only way the Coriolis effect can affect the direction of the flow of water is if it's so still the rotation of Earth is faster than that of the water in its vessel. An experiment in 1908 by Austrian physicist Otkar Tumlers created the conditions I just explained with such care it did happen, but that took 300 gallons of water in a six-foot tank that was left to settle for 24 hours in a temperature-stabilized room before little pieces of floating wood were used to determine rotation. This was a repeatable and repeated experiment that proved water will drain counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere under laboratory conditions. This is not to say flushing a toilet in one hemisphere or the other will maintain these results. 
there's a lot of media that's reported about the spin of water varying depending on hemisphere, and it's just so, so unlikely to be true. Sorry, guys. The Coriolis effect also has influence on ocean dynamics like Ekman transport, which is a frictional force in fluid dynamics. Named for the Swedish oceanographer von Walfred Ekman, Ekman transport is part of the Ekman motion theory and was first investigated in 1902. Ekman transport refers to the wind-driven movement of the surface layer of of a fluid. Because of the Coriolis effect acting on the ocean, this movement is at a 90-degree angle to the direction of the surface wind. A Norwegian explorer, scientist, and Nobel Peace Prize laureate named Fridtjof Nansen first wrote an observation of this phenomenon when he described ice moving at an angle from the direction of the wind during his expedition to the Arctic in the 1890s. Ekman transport also follows the directional rules of the Coriolis effect. In the northern hemisphere, the movement of the surface water occurs at 90 degrees clockwise from wind direction, while in the southern hemisphere it occurs at 90 degrees counterclockwise. There's one more practical impact of the Coriolis effect on objects on Earth's surface. Well, no. Uh, There's actually a lot more practical impacts of the Coriolis effect, but I'll wrap up the meteorology, oceanography, and atmospheric impact section with this one, the Yatavos effect. In the early 1900s, a team of German scientists conducted gravity measurements on moving ships in the Pacific, Atlantic, and Indian Oceans. The Hungarian nobleman and physicist Baron Lorand Yatvas de Vassaraznameni studied the results of their measurements and noticed that the readings were lower when the boat moved to the east and higher when it moved to the west. This turns out to be influenced a bit by the Coriolis effect, especially near the equator, but the perceived increase in gravity on westward objects and the decrease in gravity on eastward objects is called the Yatvas effect. It turns out there's a job out there called being a geodesist, where you measure and monitor the Earth to determine the exact coordinates of any point. And these people use a formula, derived from the Iatvas effect, to correct for velocity relative to the Earth when they are taking measurements. just touch very quickly on a few more of the ways that Coriolis forces impact us. We've been pretty Earth-focused so far, which I like doing every now and then because I always find I don't know a lot about our planet and the forces acting on it. I can move outwards, though, and mention a very fun, cool connecting fact. The Coriolis effect, as a physics problem, is part of the three-body problem. I talked about this in episode three, and I think it's come up a few times since then, but there was a problem that was solved in the 18th century by Joseph Louis Lagrange, and the question he answered was, is there any stable configuration in which three bodies could orbit each other, yet stay in the same position relative to each other? There are five solutions to this problem, named the five Lagrange points, and the last two of these, L4 and L5, each form an equilateral triangle with the two large bodies. These points are stable because of the Coriolis effect. I don't want to get into the math of how, so just trust me on this. The Coriolis effect keeps these points stable and not torn apart by gravity or dragged one direction or the other. The Coriolis effect also acts on gyroscopes. When a force acts on it at a right angle 
the axis where a gyroscope is spinning, the Coriolis force tilts the gyroscope at right angles to the direction that the external force was trying to tilt it. This has been used to keep spinning bodies stably aligned in space. Finally, and perhaps most awesomely, members of the insect orders Diptera and Lepidoptera, flies and moths respectively, have special appendages and organs that relay information about the angular velocity of their bodies. Think how your inner ear helps you orient which way is up, but even more powerful. These insect sense organs can detect the Coriolis forces acting on them when the bugs are in motion, and exploit these forces to automatically stabilize themselves in the pitch, roll, and yaw planes. Up and down, rotating, and side-to-side movements, in case you forgot what those terms mean since I talked about them at episode 20. So this was kind of a weird episode. Not so much about space. This is also the episode I got stuck on for almost four months, so maybe there's a connection there. I went into it curious about forces that act on objects on the surface of Earth and came out with handfuls of info about meteorology, oceanography, insects, waves, gyroscopes. It was weird. It's been a weird one to research and weird to write, and I'm so glad it's done. It definitely taught me a lot more than I expected, though, which is pretty exciting in its own way. It's why I got into making this podcast, after all. I feel a bit bummed that I committed to it when it was so off-brand, but I feel a little surprised by how much I didn't know about the ocean. I felt like this when I did the episode about tides, too. I can love and appreciate something without understanding it, but I'm even more in awe when I realize how much math and physics is going on when I'm just appreciating an ocean view. The same can be said for me learning about space and how big, vast, and mathy it all is up there. A quick recap of what I talked about today. I addressed the Coriolis effect or Coriolis force. I'm sure they're not interchangeable, but I can't figure out the distinction. I talked about how it affects the atmosphere and ocean, the rotation of hurricanes, the movement of waves, and how we can determine how much actual impact it has by looking at Rosby numbers. I also said how it has a role in the yacht boss effect, and I did forget to mention that artillery folks have to account for the Coriolis force when they launch shells or something across long distances. At least you got that tidbit eventually. (laughs) Oh, and it's very cool how the Coriolis force impacts gyroscopes and Lagrange points, and how flies and some moths can use the effect of the Coriolis force to stabilize their flight. I don't have a lot of new ideas for the next episode right now. I feel like a broken record just suggesting comets and Stephen Hawking as my two ideas. I do have a book on Hedy Lamarr that I'm going to take with me to New Zealand, so maybe I'll get an episode out of that. She sounds really cool. The next podcast won't be up until late February for sure, though, because I'll be seeing those southern hemisphere skies in New Zealand. You can always send me podcast idea suggestions of your own uh, or space-based questions to my Tumblr, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com or tweeting at me on Twitter at HDNTheVoid. You should subscribe to on iTunes to this podcast so you don't miss the new monthly episodes when they come up. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it widens my gyres. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to widen your gyres too. You can find my sources for this episode, music credits, a vocab list, a timeline of the people I mentioned, and the episode transcript at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD. Signing off.